Good afternoon. Thank you for coming out on a rainy afternoon to talk about livestock and how livestock programs, particularly USAID-funded programs through the Feed the Future program, um, Feed the Future initiative, can best use livestock to um, improve nutrition. My name is Kimberly Flowers. I know a lot of you in the room already. I'm the Director of Global Food Security here at CSIS. Uh, we, I, I get to just step back today, which is so nice, because we have our wonderful research fellow, Reed Hamill, who's going to moderate today and really lead the show. Um, before we begin, though, I just want to take a minute, take a minute to particularly um, thank Kate... McMahon, who's right there. Um, Kate is the writer of the report that you all have in your hands. If, um, if any of your colleagues or your organization wants extra copies of the report, let us know. It's a really high-quality report. And this is really, as I was saying to a couple of you just a few minutes ago, this is our, this is our thing on livestock. You know, we have a, a full agenda for us in 2017, but I'm excited to be able to um, produce so materials in an event to really focus in on something that I think doesn't get as much attention. Um, so again, thank you all for being here. Um, a short safety announcement. Not that we anticipate any issues, but if we do, I'm your safety officer. So look to me if there's any issues. Reed. Hi, good afternoon. Uh, thank you all so much for coming out on a rainy afternoon. We appreciate it. Um, I'm really looking forward to this conversation today. We have a really excellent group of panelists uh, to, to contribute uh, their perspectives to this important topic. Uh, my name is Reed Hamill. I'm a research fellow here with the Global Food Security Project at CSIS. Um, before I get into any of this content, though, I just want to echo uh, Kimberly's uh, remarks of, of thanks uh, to Kate, who's just been... Um, a phenomenal collaborator, such a deep, critical thinker, um, amazing attention to detail, and a wonderful writer. And I hope that you'll all have the chance to, to look at this incredibly informative report. Um, Okay, so before I introduce um, our panelists, I'm just going to uh, exercise my prerogative to make a few uh, broader contextual remarks. Um, so let me start with a, a bit of uh, global trends in, in livestock production and animal-sourced foods before delving into the contributions of this new work, which does a great job drawing from and distilling multiple literatures to make very clear and actionable policy and programming recommendations. Um, so we hear a lot about growth and demand for animal-sourced foods, and this increased demand is very closely associated with increased incomes in lower- and middle-income countries. It's much less an artifact of population growth. Um, commercial poultry production, just for example, saw a tenfold increase between 1961 and 2007, tenfold, uh, and pig and ruminant meat production have also expanded rapidly in more recent decades. Um, so we can broadly classify livestock production uh, within three production systems, so smallholder mixed crop livestock, semi-pastoral and pastoral systems, and then larger scale commercial agriculture. This report is very much focused on the first of those three, smallholder mixed systems, and that will be um, the focus of this afternoon's discussion as well. So the set of considerations uniquely pertaining to pastoral systems will not be explored today explicitly, but it's worth bearing in mind, of course, that they are complex, distinct, and numerous. Um, over the next 15 years in Sub-Saharan and North Africa, in Western Asia, and in Central and South America, the forecast growth rate of meat production from smallholder mixed systems exceeds the growth rate 
of commercial agriculture, albeit from a smaller base in some cases. So smallholder livestock systems are expected to dominate production trends in many of these areas for at least another full generation before we see the kind of consolidation observed in East and Southeast Asia and in other uh, wealthier areas of the world. Smallholder livestock systems affect the livelihoods of approximately 700 million people in just South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa alone. India has become the world's largest dairy producer almost exclusively with smallholder production. Now, I know that this community of practice in particular is cognizant uh, that the benefits of livestock ownership at the household level are diffuse from frequently cited savings and uh, smoothing functions of both risk and consumption, which offset agriculture's seasonality, um, to animal traction, to manure uh, for fertilizer. Now, the potential for productivity increases in these small systems are also huge. The productivity of high-yielding groups can be between two and six times that of lower-performing groups within the same types of smallholder systems. So improvements are achieved by systems approaches to feeding, to genetics, to health, and other inputs in combination. Uh, this can also result in a dramatic reduction in greenhouse gas emissions per unit of productive output, which is important given that livestock are estimated to contribute between 10 and 18 percent of total global greenhouse gas production. So we need to think less in terms of quantity and a lot more in terms of quality and integrated system support for agriculture, or excuse me, for livestock. Um, Finally, I want to just say a brief word about uh, risk as the expansion and intensification of livestock holdings introduces a higher level of risk for both animal and zoonotic diseases at household, communal, national, and even international levels. Um, and that risk just needs to be appropriately accounted for. So, for example, until recently, Indonesia did not have a sufficiently dense poultry population to be affected by H5N1 avian influenza, but outbreaks in recent years have led to several hundred deaths. So what are the lessons we can learn from these types of experiences? Uh, what are implications for other regions, um, particularly sub-Saharan Africa, which we'll be talking about more today in the Rwandan context? Uh, Kenya, its neighbor, has recently developed a decision support tool to respond to increased risk of Rift Valley fever. So is this kind of preparedness being emulated in other countries in a systematic way? How can donors and implementing partners really contribute to these other types of uh, important systematic and governance? efforts. Um, so getting more into the details of this report then. This report begins with the correct presumption that we know a lot already about ways to improve livestock productivity, but that going that last mile of getting diversified animal-sourced foods into the diets of those who most need them is incredibly challenging. Nearly a quarter of the world's children are stunted, resulting in permanent physical and cognitive damage, which undermines the human capital and development potential of the next generation. The burden of malnutrition has been estimated to cost the world on the order of three and a half billion, uh, trillion dollars every year. Now, of course, these effects are incredibly complex to estimate given numerous pathways and feedback loops that they're channeled through. But a reduction in the prevalence of stunting, um, a key indicator of chronic malnutrition, is also one of the highest level goals of the U.S. government's Feed the Future initiative. Unfortunately, nutrition initiatives are consistently underfunded the world over, and that's not certainly unique to any individual donor. Um, this problem can and should be addressed directly. Uh, the return on investment is incredibly compelling, and I think we'll hear more about that from Andrew. But it also forces us to think creatively about how we can do more with less. 
And this report really offers some helpful guidance. It begins by, suffer, uh, by summarizing the nutritional value of animal sourced foods and unpacking the complex pathways from livestock production to improved nutritional outcomes. It surveys the appropriateness, advantages, and disadvantages of various types of livestock programming, including poultry, and introduces the role of livestock interventions within national Feed the Future portfolios. It then delves into a case study that we'll be hearing a lot about today um, of the Rwandan Dairy Competitiveness Program, uh, which began implementation in 2012 and is wrapping up in the coming months. So while the program was not initially designed with nutrition goals centrally in mind, it was recast to tackle malnutrition more directly after implementation began, and I think they um, really did a very impressive job with that pivot. So the report notes that it's hard to change nutrition behaviors through markets alone. And of particular interest, then, is the use of entertainment education in Rwanda's dairy program through a popular radio show that we'll hear more about, a social behavior change campaign promoting dairy consumption that reached two-thirds of dairy uh, program beneficiary households, which is pretty impressive. Um, what's really great about this work is that it, it gives us a lens and an organizing framework to ask bigger, broader questions about achieving real and durable nutrition gains at scale. Uh, and that's what the work of improving global nutrition really requires us to do. So nutrition is hard to get right because better nutrition outcomes are predicated upon a complex set of behaviors repeated regularly over time, often by society's most vulnerable low-income women. It requires a coordinated constellation of inputs from the availability and affordability of diverse and safe foods to better education around childcare practices, uh, to women's reproductive health, to sanitation and hygienic conditions. It's incredibly complicated, but the economic and the moral imperative is as unassailable as it is urgent. So I uh, could go on and on, but I'm going to stop there so that we can make sure to, to hear from our really excellent uh, panelists this afternoon. I'm so delighted they were all able to join us from near and far. Um, first, we'll be hearing from Andrew Thorne-Lyman. Um, Andrew joins us from the Johns Hopkins School, uh, the Bloomberg School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins. Um, but he also has uh, about 20 years of experience in academia, working with the UN and various NGOs, and so he brings a nice complementarity of academic and field perspectives. Um, and I think I'll, I'll just introduce our speakers one by one. So Andrew, if we want to start perhaps with your opening remarks. Sure. Uh, thank you very much for hosting this event. I think it's a really important topic, and I was very happy um, to, to speak. Um, I actually, for the past um, two and a half years before joining Johns Hopkins recently, I was working for World Fish, which is an agricultural research organization. And so um, I've spent a lot of time trying to bridge the gap between nutrition and agriculture and learn how to speak agriculture speak. I think one of the challenges is that we often speak different languages. Um, and so I thought the, I, I really liked the title of this report, Herding People Towards Nutrition, Herding um, hurting agriculture towards nutrition. And sometimes, um, and I say this affectionately, sometimes it feels like we're sort of hurting people that don't really want to be doing this um, towards nutrition. And I think it's important that we recognize, you know, that there are challenges, that we come from different perspectives, that agriculture is often focused on um, goals related to improving income or improving productivity, whereas with nutrition, we're very focused on the end consumer. And how do we bridge these? How do we find synergies to be able to have a nutritional impact? I think is a really interesting question. 
So I'm going to be, begin by talking a little bit about stunting and why this is important. Is it just a matter of trying to get kids to be taller? Is that what we're trying to achieve? Or is there something deeper? And I think it's both, actually. Um, we don't talk about it much. We often just talk about stunting in a general way. But stunting is important partly because of stature, um, especially for girls. Um, when they grow, if they're not tall enough, when they have pregnancies, it significantly increases the risk of adverse birth outcomes. And so height actually is an important um, predictor of birth outcomes. And so a baby born small, because perhaps because its mother was an adolescent or didn't grow enough during the first five years of life, that can, um, a baby born small will tend to stay small. And so there's an intergenerational cycle of malnutrition. Um, so what I'm saying is by addressing this, there may be double, double dividends, essentially. You may, you're not just addressing it in this generation. If you can um, sort of um, interfere with this intergenerational cycle, you can, or break the cycle, you can actually lead to generational um, outcomes. Um, another important reason to focus on stunting is that it's very um, correlated with earning potential. Um, and cognitive development. And there's been some really wonderful work um, recently um, where they've, there's some researchers at Harvard who have been trying to model the um, economic impact of stunting and also sort of the prevalence. And, and um, what they found is that, you know, if 159 million children who are stunted, um, they've, they've found that, um, estimated that this costs, um, in a given cohort, this costs 69 million years of educational at attainment is associated with stunting. Um, gro globally, growth faltering in developing countries alone caused a total economic cost of $176 billion per cohort at nominal exchange rates and $616 billion at purchasing power parity adjusted exchange rates. Um, so it's not just about being tall, it's also about the brain. It's about children's brain development because we know that in the first two years of life, that's when, and during pregnancy, that's when children's brains are growing the most, they're differentiating. A lot of these processes require nutrients, critical nutrients. Um, another important thing to note is that stunting is a wonderful indicator of well-being because it reflects many different things, but that also makes it challenging to move. Um, it's not just about food. Uh, it's influenced strongly by, as I said, maternal nutritional status. It's influenced by infection and inflammation. There's a lot of talk and work on, ongoing as part of the Nutrition Innovation Lab, which is funded by USAID, around aflatoxin um, and potentially links to sanitation, environmental enteropathy. We're still learning about how to change stunting. That's not to say that food isn't important, it is, um, particularly food quality um, in the first two years of life. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the nutritional contribution that animal source foods can make in the first two years of life. And when you look at the cereal-based diets in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, um, one of the things that sort of stands out to you across settings is that there's a common predictable set of gaps. It's almost like you're looking at a jigsaw puzzle and there's pieces missing, and it's always the same pieces that are missing. You know, it's always iron, zinc, calcium, vitamin A, vitamin B12, long-chain omega-3 fatty acids. They're, they're a predictable set of nutrients that are absent from cereal-based diets, and 
can really, in, in their natural source, um, are quite present in animal source foods. Um, and these are the building blocks that are used for the brain. They're essential for immune function. They have so many different effects on the body. And so speaking generically about animal source foods as if it's just one, you know, as if it's a common set of categories, it's also important to recognize that we're talking about different, different types of foods having different nutrients. Milk is not the same as meat. Even different types of organ meat from other types of meat are very different in their nut nutritional composition. Um, fish, you know, there's a huge difference. I, having worked for world fish, I came to appreciate there's a huge difference in the nutritional content of small fish, which are consumed whole, versus fish fillets, you know. So it's important to think about those as well when we're thinking about, you know, what to invest in. Um, as I said, these, these micronutrients have huge impacts. You know, we talk about protein. Um, but I think sometimes when we talk too much about protein, we neglect the importance of micronutrients, which are also just so rich in animal source foods. And just so, some examples, you know, vitamin B12 is one that's often neglected. You'll often hear about zinc and iron. Well, B12 is only found in animal source foods in its natural state. Yes, you can fortify with it. But if you're talking about a local diet, you have to eat animal source foods if you want to be um, sufficient in B12. And there's a lot of research going on right now about the role of B12 in the brain and brain development. Um, it appears to be very important. Um, iron, so iron, calcium, really important in pregnancy. We know that from trials in areas where women don't have a lot of um, calcium in their diets, that if you supplement women with calcium, you can reduce the risk of preeclampsia by 55%. And this is one of the leading causes of maternal mortality. It's also a cause of preterm delivery, and it probably leads to this intergenerational cycle as well. Um, so addressing these types of gaps is really important. Um, and perhaps most importantly, when you comb through these tables of the nutritional content of locally available foods, as I've done in, in many settings, um, and you look at how do I fill this gap of zinc or iron or vitamin A or whatever. I mean, these gaps overlap, as I said, um, and animal source foods really stand out as a way to fill these gaps. Without animal source foods, it's virtually impossible to fill any of these gaps. I mean, fortification is another option, which, which should also be considered, but I think where possible, we should try to meet nutrient gaps with food. Um, one last comment. Um, so I, I spoke about how I've been working a lot with the agricultural sector, and, and I think one of the things that I really liked about the report is that it addressed this issue of the importance of nutritional goals and setting nutritional goals. And I, I think often there is some pushback or some resistance because um, people in the agricultural sector, not just the ag sector, also health people, often feel as if they don't have the leverage to be able to achieve nutritional goals. So stunting is a hard thing to move because it's caused by so many different things. You know, how this issue of how much leverage do I have is a really important thing. You know, can I move this? You know, there are certain indicators that are, that are within my control, um, and th certain things may require somebody else to address the sanitation, water and sanitation, or other components. Um, so is it fair to expect that? And what I would argue is that it's really important to expect that because by holding people responsible, potentially accountable for trying to, trying to achieve stunting, it forces them to think beyond their immediate sector. It forces collaborations to happen that otherwise wouldn't happen. 
um, it forces you to think about who's ultimately consuming the foods that are being produced. And so I think when the goal is only income um, then, or jobs, job creation, then you know, there's many ways of getting there and you can create something that's only consumed by rich people. And then the question is, well, you know, what is it doing for poor people? Um, I think there are all kinds of trade-offs in these value chains that need to be thought of. Um, and only when you have an objective that relates to stunting or other types of malnutrition can you really think through those pathways and design your program in a way um, that will have that, in, that nutritional impact. Um, I think it's also important just to think about, okay, so we know that in this trade-off between income and malnutrition, there are some win-wins. So biofortification has been a win-win. Why has it been so successful? Because you're coupling um, a technology that can improve productivity and income and at the same time improve nutrition at, at no additional cost, right? So it's, there's no conflict there. But it's not always like that. Sometimes, and I think with livestock and with fish, you know, sometimes these things are in conflict, and it's important to think those through. And I'll just end by saying, you know, it's been estimated that for every dollar invested in preventing growth faltering, there are long-run benefits of $3. And so the thinking here is that um, I very much agree with the, um, you know, Feed the Future and other ag programs having a nutritional goal because by having that angle of trying to improve nutrition and thinking th this through, um, it can make agricultural programs even more cost effective in the long run than they already are. So that's all I have to say. Great. Thank you so much, Andrew. Um, we really appreciate uh, the, the global perspective and, and the wealth of your uh, field experience as well. Um, we're so fortunate today to have two colleagues who've traveled all the way from Rwanda to join us for this conversation. So uh, we will be spending a good amount of time really delving into that case study. Um, and so first I'll introduce uh, our colleague, Fina uh, Kaisanabo. <laughs> um, Fina has been with USAID Rwanda for nine years, and so she has a really unique vantage point of uh, a lot of experience within the Economic Growth Office, both before and after the introduction of Feed the Future. Uh, so she'll share with us um, some of the broader trends and changes associated with Feed the Future in Rwanda and, and talk a little bit about how this one dairy program fits within her broader portfolio there. Thank you, Fina. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much uh, for inviting me uh, to this event and thank you for uh, uh, supporting this uh, important uh, report. Um, I want to uh, uh, start by... Uh, uh, saying that I'm going to present a little bit what we're doing uh, as, feed of, as a USAID and then I will delve in into um, our Feed the Future programming uh, in, in Rwanda. As I'm sure you all know, uh, the passage of uh, the Global Food Security Act in 2016 and the submission of uh, the Global Food Security Strategy uh, reaffirms uh, U.S. government commitment to reduce hunger, uh, malnutrition, and extreme poverty. Uh, and uh, part of the process uh, to develop this new strategy, uh, USAID um, worked with um, a number of key partners uh, to generate an impo important input in developing the strategy. Uh, one of them is 
reaffirming and expanding our commitment to, uh, to nutrition, uh, which is the main uh, topic discussion of today. Uh, I want also to commend uh, the author of the, the report uh, around all the insightful uh, recommendation that was provided, and many of which are well incorporated in the new uh, global food uh, security strategy. So for example, the first recommendation of the report, uh, we are, USAID is elevating the importance of nutrition and integrating nutrition more substantially in our Feed the Future program. <clears throat> this means that we're gonna focus more on uh, women and uh, children uh, within the one day window uh, to consume a more balanced diet, um, a nutritious diet. Uh, in regard to the fourth recommendation of the report, uh, our Feed the Future programming will be more uh, closely linked to um, social and behavior change communication uh, so that the community have uh, knowledge and skills to not only grow more nutritious food, but to be able to prepare and consume, uh, consume them. The Global Food Security Strategy uh, introduces six uh, cross-cutting um, sector uh, results, three of which addresses some of the recommendations of the report as well. And finally, uh, we are now taking a comprehensive look at the Feed the Future Result Framework and Indicators, which also linked with um, the eighth recommendation of the report. As you will see today, um, the learning from Rwanda is largely reflected in the overall U.S. government uh, global food security st uh, strategy, uh, which is the, makes the case study uh, more interesting. So talking about Rwanda, uh, Rwanda is a small country in Central Africa of the size of the state of Maryland uh, with close to 12 million uh, people. Uh, which makes Rwanda one of the highest, more dense, uh, dense uh, population in the world. Uh, the economy is mostly based on agriculture. 70% uh, of uh, the population is in farm. Uh, and uh, agriculture represents, however, 33% of the GDP. And focusing on dairy, dairy represents 15%, uh, around 15% of the, the whole agricultural sector. So in terms of uh, poverty and stunting, Rwanda, the prevalence of poverty in Rwanda is 60, close to 67%, according to the World Bank uh, uh, definition of poverty. And stunting uh, is close to 30%. It went from 52% in uh, 10 years ago. So, and, and this is, I'm talking about the uh, rural area. Uh, because in Rwanda, in average, raw areas are three times poorer than urban. Uh, and urban uh, mainly is Kigali, the city of Kigali. Dairy cows are, however, very important in Rwanda. Um, we estimate uh, that in Rwanda there's a population of 1.3 million cattle, the dairy cattle, uh, which, however, 30% only are uh, improved cow and from the 30%, 82% uh, of that milk uh, is marketed uh, in the uh, local informal and, inform, um, informal and informal markets. Culturally, uh, cows are very important. 
they are used for uh, social cohesion, uh, for strengthening family ties. They are used in as a dowry. Uh, they are used to strengthen uh, communities, friendship. Uh, cows are given names, very tender names, uh, <laughs> as well. And uh, so, building on that tradition, some of the NGOs has used that the the transition to to allow for strengthening um, or at least contributing to reconciliation uh, within the communities. As we all know, uh, the genocide has with the genocide that has been used to uh, create that um, culture of um, oneness. So, for example, one of the program. Uh, has, uh, when distributing cows to poor families, one of the conditions to those four families was to think about uh, when you receive that, are you able, are you ready to pass on the first calf to your next neighbor? So uh, that you know, approach that was introduced by one NGO has been basically um, uh, scaled up by other programs, government and other NGOs as well. So cattle is quite uh, important in Rwanda. So given the importance of dairy cows, uh, our program um, has focused on increasing um, cows productivity, linking farmers to market, uh, improving uh, food safety, but also giving that opportunity to disseminate nutrition messaging uh, uh, messages to persuade poor families to consume some or to use the money uh, that, you know, as a result the from the income of those cows to buy more nutritious food. Uh, and uh, from our pers my perspective as uh, working at USAID, one of the most important aspects of the program has been our alignment with government uh, uh, priorities. So the government of Rwanda uh, have two main uh, programs that have target targeted in uh, increased productivity uh, and income of uh, the population. One is the one, one it's called one cow uh, per family, getting her. Uh, and the other one was the, to build aggregation points uh, across more than 100 uh, of them across the country to allow for uh, farmers to sell uh, chill and, uh, and being able to sell their milk. Uh, and so based on uh, that, programs and uh, government co um, commitment to the dairy, pro dairy sector, USAID has invested in 2012 in a 15 million uh, program to impact the dairy producing uh, areas. The way we started, one, one thing that we, we, we understood in order for the program to, to be successful is to being able to, to really work hand in hand for the next five years. This was a five-year program with government program, with government in order to leverage their infrastructure, uh, their net uh, institutional framework. So we 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 were given we, we were given opportunity to develop a national strategy, a national dairy strategy, uh, and through uh, uh, land lakes. Uh, the way national strategies are being set up, you have to have all the players at high level, at decision-making uh, level, to, 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 to really think and to internalize uh, where, where, where they are and where they want to go. So it was an opportunity. Uh, all uh, stakeholders at high level set, uh, I'm talking about government, donor, 
and NGOs and, and uh, private sector. And this plan basically lay out the targets, projection targets, you know, understanding where we are, where we're going to go. Uh, and uh, I mean, the targets were referring to production, to consumption, uh, to trade, uh, how much we were planning is going to be trade internally, domestically, and for export, and the number of jobs. And the, this plan also lay out the responsibility and roles for each of the institutions sitting at the table. Uh, and, uh, and there was a process for ensuring that all the institutional, uh, these institutions were accountable on a, you know, uh, to their commitment into the plan. So the plan was approved uh, by the cabinet, which is the equivalent of the administration here. Uh, and since then, it has a, a kind of a ripple effect from the central level to local leaders. Everybody understood and everybody was committed uh, to implement the program. So I think, in my view, uh, it's been a success. Um, so uh, along the way, uh, while um, implementing the program, this USAID uh, Feed the Future program has been, the, the, the target has been modified twice to scale up uh, in the last five years to multiply almost by three. Um, and so I think one main lessons learned here was to, to we basically realized that local ownership is very much critical uh, by the country um, uh, and the, the, the commitment to really achieve each, at each level, to really achieve the goals. Uh, and also the, the ability of donors to align uh, with host country co uh, programs and to be flexible, uh, to adapt. So as you say, nutrition was not uh, part of the design, but this ability to be flexible has been uh, uh, helping us to achieve some of uh, good results we, we've seen. So given that uh, context, USAID has the opportunity to uh, uh, understood that we have the opportunity to influence uh, policy reforms, not only uh, looking at um, developing the industry uh, to increase income uh, or uh, contributing to, um, to uh, a good uh, nutrition behavior change communication, but also through evidence-based uh, research. Uh, and today uh, in Rwanda, USAID program is coming to an end, as it was said, but other donors are coming. Uh, given the position we are in, we, we are able to influence and provide input on what should continue. So a 64.9 million program that encompasses uh, government, uh, the IFA program and other donors are coming in. And uh, so we, we are very glad that this is, this is continuing the things, some of the things that we have raised as challenges and, and needs to continue to, to be done, it's going to continue. Uh, and uh, so uh, with this, I think I would like to thank you uh, again uh, for this great opportunity, opportunity and I'm looking forward to furthering uh, agricultural development in Rwanda to feed the future. Wonderful. Thank, thank you, you, Fina, for that great overview of, of government leadership, which we also know is just so tremendously important for the sustainability of these kinds of efforts. Um, 
So we'll, we'll pivot now to hear from Dennis Karamuzi, who is the chief of party for the Rwandan Dairy Competitiveness Program, too, I should say. And um, it's been under his leadership that the program has really been able to be so nimble and dynamic and uh, really l raising the level of priority uh, for nutritional outcomes within um, you know, perhaps what was initially set up to be a, a more conventional um, value chain program. So Dennis, the floor is yours. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, I'm very pleased to be here, <laughs> especially uh, from the work that Kate did in Rwanda. Kate came to Rwanda really, uh, and we were not sure exactly what we would cover as learnings that would be shared globally. And at the end of her assignment, I wanted to be sure that she actually uh, found something out of what we were doing. And I'm pleased uh, uh, when I was reviewing her report before it uh, uh, went to print, I felt comfortable that it reflected the situation in Rwanda and the little effort. Uh, and I still say little because much as we may claim nutritional outcomes, we don't per se believe that that's what we achieved. But we made a step in the direction that we feel confident we have been able to contribute and uh, that this day I am here to share with you, uh, first of all, broadly what this program was about and how we adapted to the situation and the need uh, to align with the uh, issues around nutrition. So first of all, uh, this is the Rwanda Dairy Competitiveness Program and was designed as an activity within USAID aligned with the strategic objective number seven, which is expanded economic opportunities in rural areas. And uh, by design, uh, the goal of this program was that Rwandan dairy products uh, can be made competitive within the region. So in a way, this was to position Rwanda as a source of products that can compete easily within and uh, with the other products that are produced in the region. So we had uh, what we consider uh, intermediate results. Two, one related to improving standards of dairy products in Rwanda, and the other one around increased investment in processing and marketing of dairy products. So uh, from just that little description, you can tell that this is more of a market facilitation activity that is aimed at both uh, increasing uh, the volume, the value, as you'll see later uh, in the description of the program. So in, uh, in a way, this program uh, focused largely on making sure that we were producing, but that we were also putting in place uh, some quality monitoring uh, uh, measures to ensure that our products were meeting uh, the needs of the market. Uh, it was well complemented with support around, say, financial services access, uh, BDS development, and so over uh, at, the, at the rollout of the program, uh, which was a 15 million USD program over five years, uh, the approach was more of a value chain uh, approach, uh, starting off from the farm all the way to the consumer. And uh, we felt the program was generally ambitious uh, in design, and, uh, which is a nice thing. Uh, but we also had to be very ambitious in achieving some of the expected uh, kind of life or project targets. 
I'll mention some of them, you know, increasing uh, by 60% the value and volume of dairy products. Uh, you know, 30 new products awarded seal of quality. That's a program that uh, in actual sense did not find any ongoing quality uh, improvement programs. So to set such a target was quite high. Creation of about 7,500 new dairy-related jobs. Uh, then working with the government on uh, policy reforms. Uh, some of those were really uh, very high in expectation, but uh, we are pleased that uh, we have largely uh, exceeded uh, many of those expectations. And our approach uh, was, as uh, Fina said, first of all, USAID has aligned very well with the government priorities in Rwanda. And so as a program, uh, as a project, uh, when we started, uh, our very first uh, uh, opportunity was the request from USAID to work with the government on the development of a national diary strategy. So uh, Lando Lakes had the opportunity to recruit the consultants and to lead uh, the entire nation into a process that was going to lead or to deliver uh, what was going to be the guiding policy document around improving the dairy sector in Rwanda. So that was a great starting point. And for us, uh, we took it uh, as a great advantage. And uh, the NDS, the dairy strategy, set also a very ambitious goal. Uh, and it read simply, a competitive dairy sector providing quality dairy products which are affordable, available, and accessible to all Rwandans and consumers in the region. You know, uh, it's talking about uh, quality, it's talking about affordability, availability. Uh, those are very important uh, kind of uh, uh, words to underline because in our setup, it's a smallholder kind of industry. Uh, you know, the majority of people own, say, two to three cows maximum. Uh, but you are talking about access for all. You are talking about affordability. So uh, our approach then uh, was going to be as ambitious as I said earlier. And so we set out on a selection of what we considered pillars of implementation, you know, from farm level production and productivity, working around milk quality, uh, enabling environment, which is putting in place the right policy, working with the government, a set of business development services that would complement uh, considering the entire value chain from farm to the market. Uh, of course, uh, knowing the setup of our communities, uh, we were uh, uh, largely paying attention to uh, uh, gender issues uh, at the family level as they play a critical role in uh, uh, you know, production, productivity, and uh, market issues. So. Uh, in addition, we had uh, several other components that we considered uh, kind of cross-cutting, uh, including financial services, investment promotion, uh, export market development. Uh, but what stood out uh, and is what we are talking about today is our effort around building per capita consumption. Uh, as we were working around all the effort uh, to improve the volume and uh, the market access for the products that were being produced, we, you know, we were hit by a reality that the per capita consumption was estimated at about 40 liters per person, you know, per year. So uh, uh, however much you push on the production end, 
if you don't make an effort on the other market end to increase the level of consumption, uh, all of that effort is likely to be put to waste. So uh, in discussion with USAID, we agreed that one of the things we were going to do was to run a generic campaign. And that campaign would aim at uh, building uh, more demand for products. So, and this was really a market facilitation kind of activity, kind of trying to entice the population to drink more generally uh, or to talk about uh, the quality of the products that come to the market. So we set out to increase generic consumption but also increase the quality of the products that go to the market through the campaign, which was popularly known as Shishaumva. Shishaumva simply means feel the goodness. And for the first time, Rwanda had the opportunity through the USAID funding to run a diary campaign. Uh, we got a lot of support from different people, uh, but I think uh, what uh, scored the most was the fact that this was very decentralized. It was brought to the lowest level where citizens were feeling the benefits of uh, milk, you know. Uh, I mean, milk is assumed to be a, a food, I mean, in our communities. You produce milk and uh, you sell the milk and people consume milk. So the selling aspect is what people consider the most because it earns them money. Uh, not so much more uh, the drinking uh, culturally because the way uh, looking back at the setup of uh, the Rwandan communities, uh, people have to some extent stigmatized consumption of milk uh, based on uh, ethnic divisions that of the past in Rwanda, uh, in which uh, people disassociated uh, certain foods, including milk, and uh, kind of connected it with a certain ethnic group. So when you look at communities owning livestock, some may own livestock, but not necessarily drink as much. So much as this campaign was aimed at increasing uh, the market potential, the potential for products to find a market, uh, we learned uh, in our dialogue with USAID uh, about this shift and the need to use uh, the diary program to increase more the uptake or the consumption of milk more in the interest of improving the nutritional status of families. And that whole motivation uh, was driven by uh, Washington and uh, very much so by uh, the then mission director, Peter Malnag. I think he spoke very passionately about nutrition as uh, something that uh, needed to be prioritized. And uh, USAID, uh, alongside the government of Rwanda, decided on some quick gains, you know, pick on some uh, quick gain through uh, projects like this one that were already under implementation. So overall, there was a country call uh, to uh, make the best of a program, uh, especially Feed the Future programs. And uh, this in particular uh, came to Rwanda. Uh, at some point, uh, at the end of uh, 2014, beginning of 2015, I think that's where we put the most effort into determining exactly uh, all of the work that we are doing, to what extent uh, are they contributing to nutritional outcomes, especially our ongoing milk campaign, which was Shishaumva. And uh, we also had the mid-term evaluation, which recommended uh, largely 
that this campaign needed to focus on the households, the poor households that were either keeping a cow or were expected to be drinking milk. And so we worked uh, with the ongoing program first to orient towards ensuring that we were achieving gains around nutritional outcomes. You know, making sure that families were drinking more milk for the benefit of their children, the mothers, uh, those that are pregnant and lactating. And we aimed to, at all the points, be sure that they were well aware of the reasons they were consuming the milk. Uh, not necessarily for the market, uh, so there was going to be a discussion at the family level on how much more milk can we actually leave for the family and not necessarily aim to push for the market. So we started by integrating, uh, as I said, on, within the ongoing program and then uh, worked with Lando Lakes, our in-house capacity with the practice managers to gradually transition this campaign from a focus on the market uh, as well as the quality of the products and more into the consumption of the products for nutritional gains. So as we went into 2015, we were positioned uh, at a family level to begin to address or target messages through different uh, forms of uh, uh, media, I would say. Uh, we used the radio, we used the, you know, uh, kind of uh, materials that would be put out to spread the message. But I think what stood out uh, is the choice that we made, uh, the behavior change communication campaign. So the campaign that originally started off as more of a generic milk consumption campaign shifted to focus more on behavior of the families because we then understood that the decision to sell all the milk is made at a family level and after the milk has been produced. So making sure that we are speaking to those families about decision processes became more important. So we engaged uh, the services of a very well-known local entity called Urunana Development Communications who have been running a very successful, uh, almost a decade-old program uh, focused on behavior change. And at this point, uh, our, what has really marked our achievement was the integration into an ongoing and very successful soap opera. So the message was developed based on, say, uh, a cause and kind of solution a kind of situation where you determine the issues around the family related to malnutrition and how milk can be used as a solution. And these messages having been tailored were then delivered through the soap opera, integrated into a mix of different other messages around health, uh, around education, around, uh, you know, early pregnancies, you know, the kind of life that people live. So the soap opera is built around a community that is Rwandan, that people associate very well with. And so how decisions are taken within that community and within families in that community became very powerful. So uh, during the life of the program, uh, we had uh, bi-weekly uh, shows, uh, the soap opera. We had a radio digest that happens uh, once in two weeks 
that digests and speaks about the communities, or rather the issues within the community, as has been portrayed in the soap opera. And they also uh, put in place a community outreach mechanism, where they went out and acted uh, what they were playing on the radio, live on stage. And so the population had a good chance to interact with the audience. But uh, I also want to say, overall, uh, nutrition is, is a big topic. Uh, it, it's quite broad, and what we did was only to use uh, the position of the program, uh, having been a diary program, and uh, having had so many other uh, kind of expected outcomes at the end of the project, we focused mainly on behavior change but we were well aware that nutrition in itself was quite big. So uh, behavior change was more like the, first, the starting point. Uh, become more aware of the need to drink more milk. Become more aware of milk as part of a complete diet. And so we have learned uh, quite a lot along the way. Uh, first of all, the means that could best speak to the people through this kind of approach, uh, behavior change communication. So you may speak about nutrition, but there are many ways that you can speak to the population that is actually affected. And this for us turned out to be a very strong mechanism to speak to people through what you consider edutainment, a mix of education and entertainment, through radio, because radio is a very powerful tool uh, back in Rwanda, but we also, uh, learned along the way the level of stakeholder engagement that is expected to achieve nutritional outcomes because everybody has a different understanding of how to achieve that. So that multi-stakeholder engagement, the government, uh, the, the private sector, because everyone has a role, the individual families, the husband and wife, that was a very important uh, lesson. Uh, and. Uh, as we close the program, as we come to the end of the program, I think uh, most importantly, I think everybody does not understand what causes what. Say, for example, when you talk about stunting, if it's a, a reference for, say, height for age, I mean, not everybody understands as much. Or, uh, you know, the, if, if it's a reference to weight, you know, in the sense of, how well you are fed to achieve a certain expected weight. So we all speak the same words, but to mean different. So understanding the cause-effect kind of relationships and being able to deliver a message in the simplest, uh, very basic language that people are able to understand uh, was a good lesson, especially working with this behavior change communication organization. Everything was put back to the drawing table and then designed to speak to the people a target audience and, uh, uh, you know, being sure that we were achieving the results. Overall, uh, we were able to reach out to uh, over a million and 600 people, 600,000 people. The audience is very diverse, and I cannot claim that it is uh, of the very poor people, but it is of a Rwandan audience. And as you speak to them on the radio, you are speaking to uh, people who have influence within their communities. And that message is, over time, translated into uh, results around the expectation. Uh, I think uh, 
In our case, again I say, we were not a nutritional-oriented program. But having been a, a program around milk, that was a huge opportunity. And I do not regret, and neither do any of our people, uh, shifting the program towards a much needed uh, kind of uh, benefit to the community. And today, as we speak to you, uh, I think uh, Urunana in itself has positioned itself as a strong agent of communication that empowers communities around nutrition. And much as the funding has ended, the radio program has not stopped. So we have initiated something that is integrated into a successful program already, and we hope that that will continue. So I want to end this. <laughs> it can go on and on, but uh, just as I said, uh, we did not necessarily achieve only on the nutritional front. We have achieved quite broadly, but knowing that this was a priority for USAID and the government, we are pleased that uh, Lando Lakes and USAID were happy to orient towards the right direction. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dennis, for such a great overview. <laughs> well, in the, in the interest of time, I want to make sure that we have an opportunity to have a, a great discussion with all of you, so I'm going to ask just a single question myself. Um, forgive me, Andrew. Uh, so mostly, I think, for, for Fina and Dennis. Um, Fina, you talked about the government leadership in, in Rwanda um, and, and general public sector commitments to, uh, to the dairy sector. Um, and I'm curious about your thoughts on the ways that the, the public sector, and, and maybe this is a current discussion uh, within the Rwandan government, can, can better collaborate with the private sector to, on the one hand, uh, expand uh, the, the availability and the quality and reduce the price of, of dairy products in this instance, but at the same time to really think about um, targeting the most vulnerable and the most in need, which are, which are not often households who have the assets and the resource base to, to maintain a cow. Um, and so what are the types of, if you'll forgive me, sort of innovative models to connect emergent private sector uh, actors with maybe school feeding programs, with clinical nutrition treatments, with social protection schemes, early childhood care, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then a similar sort of question for you, Dennis, now that you've been through this experience, what are your thoughts on um, ways that, uh, that NGO actors can better address the needs of the most vulnerable? So maybe to give uh, another context, national context, um, every five years, uh, government of Rwanda um, publish uh, economic, we, we call it uh, EDPS, economic strategic program for the next five years, and this is a compass everything, uh, health, education, uh, energy, and infrastructure, uh, agriculture as well. So. In uh, this period, it's ending in 18, um, the focus has been to shift, at least there's a commitment, uh, to focus, to shift a lot of um, public investment through the private sector. So that's a commitment. Um, and uh, one way um, of doing that is um, uh, typically to set up um, a framework that allows a dialogue uh, to happen between private sector and, 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 uh, and, and the public. 
And uh, in, in the dairy context, uh, I think one, one indication that government has been willing to do so is, for example, to allow this meat collection center to be, uh, to be managed by this co-op uh, until the time where this co-op will be fully self uh, financially sufficient and being able to own, uh, to own this meat collection center. And the meat collection centers are placed in remote places, really uh, no electricity for the majority of them, uh, very little difficult access to water. So these meat collection center, government is aware these are agents. They basically represent or are, have a proximity, uh, strong relationship with the farmers, including those very, um, uh, very poor. Uh, once and that's an example in dairy and it's going to happen in other livestock small livestock as well so this is a way uh, to really and 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 market attracts this uh, the very poor so if the very poor is uh, in, encouraged to produce uh, you know livestock uh, dairy or other li livestock and there is a market it's a strong incentive uh, and uh, and I think the report has shown that it has an immediate, almost an immediate effect in terms of um, uh, improving the diet at, uh, at the household level. So, and, and government has all the other means as well. Um, there could be uh, some uh, small, very relatively small subsidy program to really reach out to the very poor. Uh, and in there it's happened. So, one, so the one cup of poor family is an example to really lift out uh, this uh, poor population. Uh, that's an example as well. So there is a number of um, uh, tools that uh, the government has, and we are supporting that, as you said, with evidence-based uh, research that really uh, help to inform better how uh, to, to make it happen, Wh which ways, which approach is the best in, uh, in a d in defined uh, industry, yeah. Thank you. Well, I think you asked me a hard question on how the NGO actors can work to address needs of the most vulnerable. I think the NGO actors alone may not have uh, uh, what it takes to do that, but I believe that uh, this effort uh, needs to be combined with the, the donors themselves. Because in our case, say in Rwanda, uh, the donor platform is very influential in collaboration with the government to uh, at least work towards prioritization of certain needs at different levels. Uh, a case in point is uh, uh, how government has worked on uh, social clustering, you know, uh, working with the uh, Ministry of Local Government to create uh, what they consider wealth categories. So they are able to uh, put people at different levels and determine the needs or the level of support that is needed. I think what is important at that stage uh, already, as you heard, USAID works closely with the government of Rwanda and work ahead uh, of everybody in determining uh, development priorities, uh, say areas of investment. Uh, I think then uh, what is important for any NGO partners uh, in a situation like Rwanda again, because we have had the privilege of a government that has quickly worked very fast to align with the, or determine priorities uh, for the different categories of people. 
you know, in areas of health, in areas of education, making sure that uh, uh, they are doing the right things. So it's a lot easier for a development partner to uh, make every intention uh, to align with the, those selected priorities and work with the government who in most cases uh, have well-aligned priorities but not necessarily the means to achieve all of those. So uh, I believe in our case that has been an advantage where we work very closely with the government to first of all weigh in on the priorities but also propose the best means to achieve uh, towards that uh, need or the priority. I think that should work for the most vulnerable, for the poor, uh, knowing where they are, knowing what needs to be done, but also working collaboratively with the uh, partners uh, to be able to achieve. Thanks. Thank you. Oh, um, all right, I'd love to take some questions from the audience. If you have a question, you can just raise your hand, and we have some colleagues who will come around with microphones. Um, I guess we can start over here. Um, hi, my name is Russ Webster. I represent CNFA. CNFA, in fact, has one of the livestock projects in Ethiopia that's uh, being implemented under Feed the Future Livestock Market Development Program. Um, first of all, thanks for a great report and really interesting presentation from each of the panelists. I really appreciate it. I have a question um, about decisions made or um, not decisions necessarily or issues dealt with at the program having to do with improving nutritional intake and improving incomes. And I'm wondering, uh, because the sense I get from the, from the presentation is that you are working with producers uh, to help them also become consumers of, 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 of milk, um, as well as you were working with them to sell some of their milk products uh, into the marketplace. And I'm assuming that you probably also did some investments in a lot of the infrastructure that's really important for a successful dairy market uh, program. And if, in fact, that infrastructure was there, cooling centers and other things like that, um, to really improve the opportunity for selling uh, dairy or selling uh, meat, um, what kind of tensions did that create um, in, in the decisions that you had to make in the program um, between uh, using what's an, a very important uh, source of, of nutrition um, versus making some additional income by selling at the marketplace because at the end of the day, the producers um, have to make a decision between having more milk for their families versus in increasing the number of francs that they can get through selling the product. And I'm just wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on how you addressed that, that issue in the program. Thank you. Great. Let's take a couple questions at once so we can try to cover as much ground as we can in the little time we have left. Thank you very much. Emmy Simmons, um, agree. Let me use that one. Um, I really enjoyed, Fina, your sort of presentation as to how the, this program evolved within the sort of policy thinking at USAID and kind of your, your appreciation of the flexibility that you had to be able to adjust the portfolio as you were going. And Dennis talked very much about alignment between the government policies and programs and, and the project itself. But could you talk a little bit more about the collaboration and, and the interactions with your health colleagues? 
in terms of nutrition? How about not just drinking more milk, but washing your hands? How about uh, the cleanliness of, of preparation? How about sort of linking it with the larger wash agenda in general? Thanks, Sammy. Do we have one more we could take now? Um, yeah, I, first of all, I'd like to uh, thank all the panelists. They were really interesting presentations. I especially appreciate uh, Dr. Thome Lyman's presentation. As a livestock specialist, you know, the, the Feed the Future initiative has given us a seat at the table with uh, nutritionists in this whole area of, of dietary diversity and how do we really, uh, you know, drive uh, diverse diets that benefit women and children. And as you know, the international community has adopted minimum dietary diversity scores for women and for, for children, both breastfed and, and non-breastfed children. They have defined nine food groups, three of which are animal source foods, six of which are non-animal source food groups. But the challenge is, and this is a challenge we, we fight every day at USAID, is that success is defined as five, four to five, maybe six food groups being defined as a diverse diet, but you can achieve that without animal source foods. So we need um, experts like you and others to keep hammering home the message that a diverse diet is not necessarily an adequate diet unless it does, especially for children under two, um, unless it does include animal source foods. Um, it's not an easy, easy message to, to hammer home. So I, I very much appreciate your presentation, and I, I hope that we'll see those uh, online and we'll be able to, to see your remarks. Thanks. Okay, so pivoting back to the panelists, we've got this trade-off between sales and, and household consumption, um, and then the health colleague coordination. So uh, I suppose dive in wherever you'd like to. Okay. Uh, uh, that's a good question you asked, uh, and I think uh, overall, uh, as I said, as when I started, the program was more of a dairy competitiveness program, and we were connecting the dots from production all the way to the market, and that in itself was already uh, making good progress. Uh, a lot of effort uh, around infrastructure, around operationalization of the infrastructure, kitting all along the chain to ensure that the system was smooth. Uh, and uh, the biggest motivation, uh, as we have learned from every farmer, is a market that is functioning, that guarantees them uh, the sales on a regular basis. Uh, so the focus on nutrition was more about the achievements that are gained from how much more they are able to produce. The market is functional, it is active, but it is also important because we know that nutritional decisions are made at the family level and they must be agreed upon uh, for a family to make the right choices. Otherwise, the children may be fed but are likely to be fed the wrong diet. So uh, the behavior change communication approach is the single approach that was picked out on our part to communicate, to speak to the people. It's a hard decision choosing between feeding children and gaining some extra income because there is so much that the families need. Uh, there is so much that they want to gain by selling milk. So a decision to drink more milk, say, at a family level is one that needs discussion. 
compared to one to sell more milk, which is the obvious one, which is what has motivated many producers to increase their per cow production. So uh, in our case, uh, that's where we started off, and we decided that this is a deep-rooted problem about decisions on the right mix of diets, the, the composition of your diet. And so the messaging that we were sending out went to the extent of detailing the kind of uh, 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 the micronutrients, say in milk, uh, that I had him mention, so that uh, people would be motivated to make a decision to feed their children more or for the mothers to drink more, well aware of, uh, you know, uh, they have to weigh. I may sell the milk and gain some income, but I have so much to lose uh, for a child who, is, who may not achieve the right height or the right weight for their age. So I think uh, in our case, uh, I think it's, it's always been a tough family problem, and that's why we certainly picked on behavior change communication. A decision between the husband and the wife especially has been a hard one on incomes coming from the milk. So the communication was important to speak to you as a family member, but also as a community when you listen to this radio program, the families feel kind of ashamed for making the wrong decisions. And so they are motivated uh, gradually to do the right thing, which is to first feed your family before you can take all the milk to the market. Uh, Uh, thank you very much for a uh, very interesting uh, question. Um, so just to give a, a contextual um, situation of uh, uh, the nutrition uh, messaging uh, in Rwanda, in USA it has been driven by the, the, the health programming uh, and as well as in the country. So the Ministry of Health is responsible uh, of uh, all uh, related um, coordinating efforts related to nutrition uh, communication, nutrition messaging and communication. Uh, and uh, with the research uh, results that has found out um, that ASF, uh, animal source, lack of animal source food in, in uh, people's uh, diet were lacking was one of the driver to, to, to stunting the move has been to integrate ASF. So we came in as uh, in, a, in a context where nutrition communication was happening already, um, uh, maybe not emphasizing too much on this through uh, the radio soap uh, opera as a, as a uh, channel. But so we came in as to contribute, to add on, and, and, and uh, through the program to contribute to improve animal um, nutrition messaging by improving, by adding on ASF, animal source food, as an important element uh, of the diet. So that that's, has been the contribution of Feed the Future, and it's going to continue because uh, it, it's it's relatively something new. So that the, this, find, this research data has been found uh, recently with the latest uh, demographic, uh, not the latest, so um, for the last five years demographic health survey. Uh, so it's something new and that's, this has been our contribution. Uh, and that's why 
it's been really relevant to have the program uh, such as Derry to provide their input into making this messaging more and more complete uh, to the rural areas. Thanks. Um, I want to actually just uh, sort of skip back and add on to, to Dennis's answer, the, the question on the sales versus home consumption trade-off and, and draw folks' attention to this graph on page 28, which shows that over the course of just two years, the average production of dairy in these households participating in Dennis's project um, more than tripled. And uh, in, a, in a related trend, you can see that the, uh, the proportion of milk consumed in the household actually went down over time, but the absolute uh, volume of milk consumed at the household level went up. And so I think, you know, starting with these vast productivity gains, um, you, can, you can, I think, have a win-win situation where you have both more incremental sales and also more household uh, consumption when, when productivity goes up by, by these margins. Uh, yeah, that's, that's really, thank you for that. Um, from a program strategy point of view, though, what that says to us is that you cannot have one without the other. Mm -hmm. In the sense that your, your program uh, needs to really look at markets because the markets are what create the opportunity for the households to improve the nutritional intake. And I really appreciate what you had to say about the behavioral change side, the messaging, so, so important for them helping them to use that opportunity in a way that's going to create not just sustainable economics, but sustainable nutritional futures for their families as well. Absolutely. And ultimately, that will drive down the, the price uh, in the marketplace for everybody else too, right? Um, do we have any other questions in the back? Dan? Thanks. My name is Dan Silverstein. I'm a private sector and capital markets strategic advisor. I'm interested in any uh, program which says that it is uh, address, addresses food security and nutrition, that actually addresses food security and nutrition. And um, I'm a member of the Tufts Nutrition Council, which uh, takes a, a great deal of interest in the, the uh, translation of programs that are designed to increase food security, reduce hunger, and the nutritional value that the recipients receive. And, I'm one, and, and I looked in the back in the recommendations. I saw that there's a reference to monitoring and evaluation. And I raised the question in my mind uh, as to whether there's a role for land-grant universities or universities such as Tufts, which have very strong uh, nutritional credentials, to work alongside these programs and actually try to quantify the value of the nutrition as it is evolving. Thank you. Any, any other final questions? Yeah. Hi, my name is Meredith Witte, and I'm here with the U.S. African Development Foundation. I actually work on Rwanda and Burundi programs. And to add on to that gentleman's question, as I'm working with um, agricultural co-ops or milk-producing um, groups and uh, farmers in Africa, what are the indicators that we should be looking at in addition to the economic indicators, which are easier to track, you know, numbers of liters sold, uh, the amount of income that you're generating from those activities? What should I be looking for as far as nutritional indicators, or is there something beyond um, per capita uh, milk consumption, or what, what could I be looking at that would give me an idea of what the nutritional benefits would be to programs as well? Thank, Thank you. you. Um, okay, it sounds like those are both squarely in your in your camp, Andrew. Sure, thank you so much for those questions. Um, in response to your question, I, I think 
some of that is already actually being done by Tufts and um, through the Feed the Future Feed the Future Innovation Lab, which Tufts leads, and we collaborate with them. Uh, not in Rwanda, no. That's okay. You're asking specific to Rwanda. So certainly in, in Nepal and Bangladesh and other places, we're doing a lot of that type of research. But um, you know, I I, uh, I didn't know much about this particular project, but it, it is a wonderful example. You know, I, I was talking at the beginning of of how few examples we have outside of biofortification where there is this sort of win-win, and and I think that you know. It's worth studying and trying to document these type of examples. Yeah. Um, and then the, the second question on the nutrition um, indicators for, for program yeah. Uh, leaders. Yeah, and I, I also very much appreciated your comment on the dietary diversity. Um, you know, right now, so I think it's important to acknowledge that with any indicators, you know, you sort of have this trade off between the practicality of collecting the indicator and the, the d detail that us as like academics want to see ideally like ideally we would want to be measuring actual intake you know of the people who need it different types of socioeconomic strata and and as you saw in the, in the report you know the the amount of detail that we have we have some information from the DHS um, of change over time and it looks like it increased a little bit uh, we have you know some information about you know from beneficiaries of the program on their their consumption as well. Um, we have tools. They take a lot of work, you know, to be able to understand things like the 24-hour recall is a very standard sort of nutritional tool that can be used, and you're supposed to do it more than once. Uh, it it takes training um, to be able to get at that accurately. Um, so I think, you know, there is a middle ground that's needed. You know, I, I think it's useful. Like in the in the case of fish, we we also talk a lot about the number of kilograms per person per year, you know, but even that, you know, there's variation, as I said, in different types of fish, and within the household, measuring who eats what within a household is very difficult. It's it's sort of like it's been called the black box of of um, you know w what happens once food gets to the household. Um, so I think you really need to be developing, you know, specific taking some case studies and really going into depth to be able to get that level of detail that you're probably after. Um, you know, I think the dietary diversity tools, I remember before we had these, before we had a consensus on dietary diversity, you know, all we had was stunting and wasting and underweight, right, anthropometry. So I think to be able to have these as targets is a wonderful concept. Um, are they perfect indicators? No, not by any means. And I think programs like this, in addition to, I wouldn't say this is the, the only outcome that you're striving for is dietary diversity. If your goal is to, to try to measure or to try to get people to consume more milk, you must measure that directly, right? That's probably your primary goal. And then how that contributes to dietary diversity is a secondary but still important goal. And we're even going to end on time. Um, thank you all so much for joining us. I'm sure our speakers will be available for a few more minutes if you have any lingering questions. Um, and of course, if you'd like any additional copies of the report, don't hesitate to reach out. Or if you have comments after you've had a chance to review it, we'd of course love to hear those as well. Thank you so much for coming.